welcome to Magic by Design. If this is your first time listening, thanks so much for stopping by. We are delighted to have you with us. Come along with us as we watch and review every theatrically released Disney animated feature film. In each episode, we watch a classic Disney movie, then we talk about it, and there's even a little song in the end. Everything you could want from a Disney-themed podcast. This week, we watched Disney's 34th animated feature, The Ho Ho Hunchback of Notre Dame. But before the bells of Notre Dame ring, allow me to introduce myself. I'm Ken, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, that's brother Garrett. Garrett, how are you? More like before the carol of the bells of Hunchback of Notre Dame's ring. You shook your head at my pun. At your ho ho ho. And then you came up with that trash. Your ho 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 was mediocre, whereas I'm like, carol of the bells is a Christmas song that ties everything together. Has your wig been? Fine. One second. Ow. Ow. Oh, it's not a mask. Garrett, that's a, a deep pull. Yeah, it's, a, it's also a, a visual gag for a podcast medium. In case you didn't understand what just happened there, because there's a scene in this film where someone pulls on Quasimodo's face and realizes he's just that ugly. I pulled on Ken's beard to reveal that he's not, in fact, wearing a mask, but he is actually just, he looks like that. That's his face. Well, Garrett. I'm so nice. I'm going to get the last laugh here because I have written in the script, pause for Garrett to burn me. And ah. liken me to Quasimodo. I believe that's not getting the last laugh, though. <laughs> that's... Well, Gar, if I hurt myself, then you can't hurt me. But I hurt you before you even had the chance to get there. I just went straight for it. It's Christmas and I've done this to you. Santa isn't... Uh, no, the Tesco ad said you can't be bold this year, so everything is fine. Yeah, there's no naughtiness this year and Gar's taking it to heart. I'm sick of those ads. I'm sick of all these COVID ads. All of them. They're worse than... They're not worse than COVID, but they're up there. <laughs> like, if it's not, like, in these uncertain times, it's been a tough year. Or, like, look how sound we are. Mm. Look how cool we are. We're, we know you've had a tough year. Buy some mince pies or something. Just show up and make an ad. You know? Yeah. Because like, these difficult times. We, like, we really need to escape, you know, when we're watching TV and like avoid thinking about the garbage fire yes, that has the, been 2020. Endless, relentless part of the world. No, the state of the world is in regard, regardless of years. People are always like, no, 2020 is going to end. Everything's going to get fine. It's not. It's just the way the world is now. Yeah, but when I watch TV, I don't want to be reminded of it constantly. Endlessly. And that's not going to be, it's like Tesco acknowledged the COVID existence. I'm going to go to Tesco for my Christmas turkey. It's like, who's going to think that? Tesco have had a tough year too. They're like me. Yeah. Relatable. Brands. Buzzwords. Christmas. There's no Disney Christmas movies. It's upsetting. Well, there is. There's 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 plenty of straight-to-DVD ones. There's that Christmas Carol one, and there's... I remember having a tape as a kid. It was like a a package film, but for Mm. Christmas. So, yeah, there's plenty of, like, uh, Christmas shorts and Christmas uh, DVD films and VHS films. And I guess, like, Frozen? It's not a snow. Garrett, Frozen is in a category that we talked about the other day in that it's not explicitly about Christmas, but it's associated with Christmas because of the themes. Yes. Uh, so it's like Die Hard, which actually is set at Christmas. Uh, Hook, which is also set at Christmas, but still. But not Christmas movies, but they are. And like, there's other another subcategory of films that are always shown at Christmas, mm. have nothing to do with Christmas, but I associate it with Christmas. Like Titanic, it's always on, on Stephen's Day. All of the Harry Potter films. Yeah. There's like a tradition, because uh, our Christmas tradition is we go up to our aunts and we all have a nice Christmas together, which won't happen this year because the state of the world but usually every time we go up like traditionally there's just a Harry Potter film on TV because of course there is and you watch it for like 20 minutes before dinner yeah and they show nothing else during Christmas and then and to be fair there's usually Christmas scenes in Harry Potter so it does somewhat work because Harry Potter films usually span a year and usually have some things happen at Christmas but nonetheless it's not a Christmas film it's not and none of these are Christmas films there's still Christmassy sections in some of the package films so yeah. maybe those count I don't remember which one the Christmassy scenes are is in I remember that one where they're 
skating on the lake. Remember that one? Make Mind Music, I think that's in. You're just randomly guessing. You have no idea. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. It could be any of them. But yeah. They all meld together, to be honest. There is some Christmassy elements in some of those films, so perhaps you could watch those. And I don't think any of the others are set at Christmas, so. Well, technically, Muppet Christmas Carol is a Disney movie now. That's not a Disney animated feature, Ken. It's not within the remit of this podcast. I recant my statement. Yes, but Muppet Christmas Carol is a tremendous film, and One More Sleep Until Christmas is one of the better Christmas songs, full stop. There's something in the wind today. It's good for everyone. Can't stop there before we get sued. Oh yeah, Disney will take us down due to my wonderful singing version of A Muppet Christmas Carol. Gary, you are coming quite fresh to this movie this week. I have never seen this movie. I have no cultural reference for this this movie. I don't know any of the songs. I don't particularly know the characters. And I don't know the plot. So I was like, oh, this is all new. This is one of the Disney 90s films. It's just just completely and utterly eluded me. I, on the other hand, this is one of my very favourite Disney movies. And one I return to very often because it sits proudly in my DVD collection. Oh, yes. Do you? Okay, we're going to get straight into it. Does it hold up? Um, Oh, no, it doesn't. I, I really related with Quasimodo. Understandably. As a ch- pause for Guard to Burn Me. There you go. Uh, I think its songs are very underrated. And when I was a kid, our family won the lotto. You remember that? Well, we didn't. Our, our extended family won yeah, the lotto. And we were not part of the, the lotto winning syndicate. So yeah. we're just we're just on the outside looking. We got a PlayStation out of it. So. Yeah. And my aunt, who's my godmother, gave me £50 as it was at the time. Mm. Uh, because she was one of the syndicate winners. And I used a good chunk of it to buy a hunchback of Notre Dame branded dressing gown and slipper set, which I had for many years. And yes, I enjoyed it. Which I do remember. Yes. Um, yeah, I I think I'm watching it differently, of course, now these days. I'm watching mm-hmm. it with a more critical brain. I, I do have a soft spot for it still. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I will defend it. But at the same time, there are issues. It's fine. I think it's fine. Is that like it's it's right there at Pocahontas? It's actually it's basically the same level of quality as Pocahontas with one less good great song, and it's probably less interesting on the whole as Pocahontas. But yeah, it's fine. I don't love it. I don't hate it. I think it's it's middle of the road Disney. The idea to adapt the Hunchback of Notre Dame came from the development executive David Stainton in 1993, who was inspired to turn Victor Hugo's novel The Hunchback of Notre Dame into a feature film after reading the classics illustrated comic book adaptation. Ah, so he didn't actually read the book itself? (laughs) No, there's there's a series of comic books, and they're really nicely illustrated, actually, but they they transfer classic tales or classic Mm. books into a a comic book format. Were were those comic books directed toward children? I'd say young adults children yeah so yeah that's where you get like victor hugo let's make it for kids let's water it down somewhat staten then proposed the idea to jeffrey katzenberg who greenlit it the hunchback of notre dame was released in june 1996 to generally positive reviews and commercial success grossing over 325 million dollars that's 540 in 2020 buckaroos and became the fifth highest grossing film of 1996 um it's it's kind of out there with pocahontas as a film disney don't acknowledge much isn't it yeah and again i know maybe i'm reading too much into this but the ones that they really take ownership of and hold up there as like the top tier ones they put the newer Disney intro in front of Mm. this was another one they did not so you don't see Quasimodo much places you don't see Esmeralda much around so they very much cornered this one off they made a sequel yeah which of course they did it went straight to DVD they are they remaking it yet? yeah they are I was gonna say this seems like prime remake unlike Pocahontas which they might have some issues trying to remake this one they can just literally remake though this film is at its core a film about a man who gets so horny for somebody he burns down Paris so yeah. that's quite fun we'll get there Gar but uh, that, that's basically the takeaway from this film yeah horniness the the, wo- the woes of being horny on Maine or maybe it's, it's it's internalizing maybe actually the message of this film is to be horny on Maine because like 
The issue here is that Frollo internalizes his horniness. And represses his feelings. He represses his horniness. And then as a result, it comes out as like contempt for people and anger and fire, mostly. Um, so maybe the message here is to let the horniness loose and we can all live happily in our free horny lives. Yeah, I think sometimes when you think too much about, you know, people who are religious, they think about all their actions and, you know, the afterlife and being pious. And I think people just drive themselves a bit crazy because, like, you know, and that can come out as different things. Anxiety it can come out as fear, but it can also come out as anger as well. Yes, and raging, burning fire. Like literally, Frollo's big song in this film is about how horny he is. He's like, I'm so horny for Esmeralda, but I can't do anything. And she's a seductress and it's all her fault for seducing me. So with her. she must die now. Yeah, so I must burn Paris down till I find her and then offer her the single choice of death or being with me that's that's what his song is about Gary you won't be surprised to hear that in October 1993 the production team on the film went to Paris for Uh 10 days three of which they worked of course wasn't this the same team that did Beauty and the Beast same directors yeah and Don Han worked on The Lion King as far as I remember so like Beauty and the Beast very like French inspired as well wasn't it of course set in France set in France so they're basically like it's another France movie you guys take it (laughs) run with this ball this French ball you're the only people who can make French movies it's um Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise co-directors who also directed Beauty and the Beast by accident yes in fact they'd made the most of their three days devoting it to exploring Notre Dame including a private tour of rarely glimpsed sites and actual passageways stairwells towers and a hidden room within Hugo set his actions so all that stuff actually exists well it used to yeah. <laughs> until Notre Dame burned to the ground they also visited the Palace of Justice and a location thought to be the original location of the Court of Miracles which apparently existed yeah because like Victor Hugo's books weren't they weren't biographical but they were certainly set in the real life events of France but it is interesting to watch this film that has such a focus on Paris burning and then Notre Dame actually burned down perhaps it was prophetic or- yeah it's foreshadowing it's quite sad that a major landmark how much of it burned did it like fully burn to the ground or like no not, not like fully burned to the ground but major damage yeah in the tens of millions, apparently. Apparently one of the Assassin's Creed games is going to be integral in helping rebuild it because, like, the amount of intricate detail they went into modelling it in the, their game, basically it's, like, just a, a digital version of Notre Dame that's, like, true to life and so close to the real thing that they can use it to help reconstruct how it looked in the first place, which is quite fascinating. Maybe they can do that here. Maybe all the... Because there's, like, Mickey Mouse heads in the archaeology of Notre Dame and I was like, is that actually in the building or is it just a little Easter egg that they put these three circles that look like the Mickey mouse head or since we've been watching these movies week after week you're just seeing seeing things things that are not there well to bring it back to kingdom hearts in which i don't think there's i have to i haven't actually checked about the kingdom hearts representation of hunchback is there's some of it i think but there there's a thing in kingdom hearts 3 where they hide a bunch of mickey mouse heads in the worlds so you have to take pictures of them and maybe that's it maybe it's just i'm trained to see mickey mouse heads in disney properties now because of kingdom hearts my main takeaway from the animation of this film gar i said this yesterday when we watched it i think the animation has become somewhat homogenized in the, in the mid 90s in the sense that it looks great but it's kind of soulless in a way yeah there's it's it does look very good there's there's a uniformity to how these films look now even when they're set in france or set under the sea or set in Africa or what did we watch last week? Uh, Pocahontas set in the Virginian woods of the 1700s or whatever. Whenever that film was set I actually have no idea now that I mention it. Um, yeah, it all looks the same. It all has that single uh, animation style. They very much have a house style that th- this is what Disney films look like which is what kind of fascinated me about the early films because they didn't
didn't really have that. It's like they, they had certain elements of it, but like films like Aritzakats and uh, would look distinctly different from uh, Sleeping Beauty for a variety of reasons. But, they, but when you watch, say, Pocahontas back to back with Hunchback of Notre Dame, it's like, oh, these films are made by the same people. They very much have a house style of animation now. Yeah. And I think it's like it removes artistic expression because t- to your point, Lady and the Tramp had a very specific looking style and so did 101 Dalmatians. I didn't always like it, hmm. but at least it had its own distinct identity yeah. where these become kind of melded together. Important uh, update kind of Google that. There's like a, a Hunchback Kingdom in, uh, or in Kingdom Hearts Dream Drop Distance, which I played. So that's the reason I'm not aware of. But there's a whole kingdom. There's a world. So there you go. Very important character. We've gotten Aristocats. We've gotten Kingdom Hearts. Do you want to get... Oh, Black Cauldron? You should watch Black Cauldron and revel in its mediocrity. Okay. As you have every right to do, and as Disney will not suppress our right to. Job done. As far as they don't put a warning on Disney+, Plus, like, you click on Black Cauldron to watch, and they're like, you sure? And then you say yes. He's like, you sure you're sure? Really? And then you click yes, and then it puts on Little Mermaid. Gerda <laughs> was some innovation in this film. During early development, Truesdale and Wise realised that they needed crowds of people. Now, in the past, they had done crowds, but they were static backdrops. Mm. So they recalled the Wildebeest stampede in The Lion King. We talked about that, in which they created multiple character models, which, you know, were pre-designed to go in different patterns, and then they cel-shaded them to make them look like traditional animation. They used a similar technique here. For that reason, the CGI department headed by Kiran Joshi um, I imagine a Japanese fellow created the software Crowd to achieve this new software for this movie car to achieve large scale crowd scenes particularly for the Feast of Fools sequence uh, and the film's climax the the software was used to create six types of characters male and female either average in height fat or thin different kind of body shapes and each was assigned 72 specific movements ranging from jumping to clapping so you know when they're all mixed in it it, it looks like a real crowd it doesn't look like the same like three animations side by side yeah but if you look really close close you can see repetition yeah it's not like well, looking at the crowd in like mario tennis games where it's like the same three toads going Hello! doing their same three toads animations yeah so yeah actually the 3d in this film i think looks better than the 3d in any of these films have looked so far yeah and pocahontas they put it in weird places like the boats where they stuck out where like i, I had a note here the 3d bells look fantastic in the opening of this film and throughout like even the, that scene where like he's swinging out amongst the crowds and you see the actual crowds in 3d and you uh, as as you're meant to see the technology and it's like oh that actually looks pretty good and this is as you forgot to mention last week this is in the age of toy story yes so like toy story is a real thing that has been released released in 95 around the same time as Pocahontas so like this is an era in which 3D animation was hitting its stride and like becoming a real like not just a side attraction they shove into like 15 frames of their films it's like this is a real new genre of animation so by the time we get to Hunchback of Notre Dame people know how to do it really well yeah like there's some scenes where he's scaling the building or escaping the building or towards the end of the climax where he's swinging to save Esmeralda it looks really great the 3D cameras like pan around him and like it gives a sense of uh, life and vitality to it that you wouldn't have seen before yeah and like it still has some of like the metallic quality it doesn't yes. get all the way there but i think it's it's a lot more organic looking than it was say in beauty and the beast yeah and it's strange it is more organic looking but it sticks out to me way more now that we're watching these films back to back like i would never have noticed that before but they really do kind of pop out at you because again because like we watched these films originally around the time they were released these were our first reference points for what these films should look like so when they were 3d scenes it didn't really pop out to us but because we've watched all these films in a row we have all the, like the 2d 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 3d so like oh look at this new stuff yeah so it does pop out at you because we are watching with that kind of critical 
the line. Gary, as we said, this is based on the 1831 novel of the same name by Victor Hugo. I, I have a note here, it's not really related, but it's interesting that for a long time this was Hugo's most popular and famous work, especially in pop culture, but it's since been overtaken by Les Mis. Uh... Frollo, Javert, same character. Pretty much. They're like literally both men uh, devoted to their job who used uh, the, the like justification of faith to a degree to, to justify doing really horrible things and then eventually realize. Actually, no, well, Frollo never realizes he was in the wrong. My favorite thing about Javert is he's like, has my conviction been threatened? Has my life been a lie? And then he kills himself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, better kill myself. <laughs> like his entire worldview crumbles and he's like, well, that's it. There's nothing left. I've seen the 1998 film with Liam Neeson I've seen the musical film and his suicide comes out of nowhere in each film and it's just very off-putting and jarring well you see he committed his entire life to chasing Jean Valjean who he believes is a horrible criminal who deserves to be put away and then he discovers that that might not be the case so he has lived a lie Ken for his entire life and kills himself Fair play. <laughs> Frollo at least could learn that lesson. While we're on the subject of Frollogar, they're really pushing boundaries for a Disney uh, animated film in terms of the motivations and actions of Frollo. They changed his role from archdeacon to a judge mm. to avoid the wrath of churchy types. It didn't work. Well, so- like the, the, but the, the, the church is kind of like portrayed in this film as this pure thing who is the only good in the, the city of Paris. Like, like the priest is like the, the most good character you get in this film who like saves Quasimodo from being thrown down a well. <laughs> and yeah gives Esmeralda sanctuary and generally is considered the the, the probably the, the best character in terms of like the, how the characters present good and evil. He's the good uh, to Frollo's bad. So like yeah, they gave most of the, the... Were church people still upset at this? Yep. The Southern Baptist... Uh, oh, the f- fucking Southern Baptists. Yeah. You will have to put an uh-huh in there, but uh, those dumbasses don't go... The problem with all these religious people is they don't believe in shit. They don't believe in the teachings of Christ. They don't believe in like help your brother and lift people up and help the sick and help the poor. It's like, no, they're just self-interested dumbasses. <laughs> We're going to have the wrath of the Southern yeah. Baptists now, yeah. who, who just hate people for who they are and want them to conform to their stupid worldview and don't actually follow the teachings in which they vehemently defend. No, it's just a structure to maintain their status quo. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, the Southern Baptist Convention urged its some 16 million members to boycott the film and all Disney ventures due to the themes in the movie and the casting of Demi Moore as Esmeralda. Why do they hate Demi Moore. She just starred in the film Striptease as an exotic dancer. Oh, these people on their... She gets her boobies out. Idiotic, prudish values. The what are the pro- Like... The protests in the US also caused thousands of British parents to ban their kids from seeing the movie. People are stupid. I mean, this film is possibly one of Disney's darkest animated films in terms of its narrative, you know, really mature themes such as infanticide, lust, damnation, anti-Zagonism, that's a new word I've learned. It's a persecution of Romani gypsies, genocide, and sin. And it's a lot going on... And potential incest. It got a it got a G rating though because oh, Disney told that line quite a bit. Well, we always talk about like the things they put in the like the gargoyles are put into the film. This film for kids. That's the kids bit. And then the rest of the film is basically like, all right, this is for adults. Yeah. Like I do think this is the film that came closest to like we were talking. I think a lot of last week about why they should have probably made Pocahontas as just an animated film for adults. They kind of did that here. They kind of did that, but they pulled short of going for it again. Again, the commercial considerations and wanting it to be kid friendly pulled them up short of the line of. Like, 
like really going into like these really complex themes. That's why the relationship between Esmeralda and, and uh, Quasimodo couldn't happen, Ken, because obviously uh, Quasimodo was the son of a gypsy and they could potentially be related for yeah, all they know. We could have a Luke and Leia situation on our hands here. So that's just, that's the reason they couldn't go farther again. <laughs> yeah, Phoebus is uh, Han Solo in this situation. Yeah. On the subject of Esmeralda, we're seeing a, a trend of portraying the taboo of a white man falling for a woman of colour mm-hmm. in the last two films. Almost fetish-like in a way. I find that kind of unsettling. Well, the, like, to, to be fair, like, Frollo as a villain, the, like, full-on fetishizes her. Yeah. Again, horniness. And, like, the the scene where he has her, like, grabbed and just sniffs her hair, which yeah. should be, it's meant to be extremely unsettling, I think is even more unsettling given, like, the recent climate with that stuff and how we finally... Have a reckoning with it. Yes, we finally had, like, the full level of intolerance that we always should have had with things like that. But it, it certainly, I think it hits differently than it probably would have in the 90s, and it hits a lot harder as, like... I did shudder. A really creepy moment. Uh, and, yeah, so, like, th- there's stuff in this film that I think is is pushing boundaries. We're seeing somewhat of an evolution of the trope of the magical Negro Gar. Gar, I'm not the person to talk about this, but, you know, it's basically a person of colour who teaches a white person lessons through magic. You know, normally it's male, but, you know, we've seen Pocahontas and Esmeralda fill that role in the last two films. So I just find it interesting that two films in a row, you had those themes of, you know, the taboo between white and black people mixing in terms of couples but also in terms of a black person teaching a white person lessons we clearly didn't learn anything through that though did we no we're like white people are stupid and need to learn lessons from other cultures and it's like nah that's cute but <laughs> that, that just didn't sink in in these films Disney also jettisoned a lot of the main characters from the novel and added the gargoyles I like the gargoyles gargoyles are for kids I didn't. That, that's the thing that are like we need something in this film for the children we'll have some nice gargoyles there you go for the longest time Gar I did not know that Laverne was female her name is Laverne I know I obviously wasn't paying attention as a kid and I also didn't catch that the other two were called Victor and Hugo yeah that's the name of the guy who wrote the book what, what do you think of them as, as sidekicks they're for kids I think if they weren't in the film at all if you just took it out entirely the film would play out exactly the same that's true and they had some okay songs, but forgettable. Hmm. That's my uh, take on, like, I was still singing Colors of the Wind after we watched this film last night, which tells me that, like, Colors of the Wind, all-time banger, and songs in this film, very forgettable. We'll get there, Gar. Name, what's the best song in this film? Out there. Sing me. it. Out there, living in the sun. With this big warbly Go voice, which I'm sure Nicole hates and we'll talk about later. She did not, she, but she mentioned it to me. She, she doesn't like his voice because he, uh, Tom Holtz, who does the voice, I think mm-hmm. he did the singing voice as well, does this kind of Favaro thing. Yeah. Every, like, he, he he just does not, and like, he pointed it out to me very early in the film and probably ruined the, all of his songs for me. Because yeah, he's like, out there. He cannot just hold a note. He cannot just be like, out. He can't do that. It's, uh, he has to have the false Favaro on like every single thing he does. So I, I get it. I get Nicole's hatred of this and she has passed it on to me through you. Another point here, Gar, Quasimodo and Esmeralda are killed in the original story. This was changed by Disney to give them a happy ending. Ugh. Again, we talked about this. Like, if you really wanted to be more adult and push those boundaries, I wouldn't have killed Kill them both off. Kill them. Ken like, wants to see them burn in the fires of Paris. I could have seen a case for killing off Quasimodo. Especially because he gets the sad ending because he doesn't get the girl. And she, she like, leads him on. Like, that poor guy. Uh, he is not misreading those signs, you know? He is not seeing something that isn't there she is leading him on and manipulating him for her own end and poor Quasimodo and he doesn't, he's just like the sad bellboy at the end everyone mm. gives him a little clap they don't throw freaking tomatoes at him anymore which is quite nice I guess that's also, progress for him totally unearned because they just changed their minds suddenly again like the, the standoff in the battle in Pocahontas like they've derided him they've pelted rotten fruit and, and veg-
advantage at him. And all of a sudden, now he's a hero and they're all friends with him. And yeah, they accept he him. doesn't get the girl. Yeah, but she does. But again, they may be. There's a chance they're related. Yeah. So. <laughs> but she does use their relationship to get him to help her. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, like, yeah, I, 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 my overwhelming feeling was I didn't like Phoebus that much. He was kind of Kevin Klein plays Phoebus. He has a, a few. He's a very 90s charming, yeah. slightly obnoxious lead, isn't he? But you actually see through a lot of these films. Yeah. Like, he's basically the same character as Mel Gibson's character from Pocahontas. John Smith. Like, James, John Smith and him, they're the exact same yeah. in terms of, like, slightly arrogant, slightly conceited, but charming and good-natured. And some good lines, but, you know, I, I'm not saying I think Quasimodo should have ended up with Esmeralda, but mm-hmm. I, I think I would have been happy. Quasimodo uh, should have ended up with Phoebus, is what we're saying. Yes. That's the couple we want to see in the okay, end. Well, they did have a, a bit of an odd couple scenario where they're trying to save Esmeralda and save the Court of Miracles, and I, I did sense a, a sexual tension there. They should have realised they love each other, and Esmeralda should have been, like, who's leading both of them on, she should have been left out in the cold. There, it may not surprise you that fans of Victor Hugo's novel were disappointed with, all the, with all the changes that Disney made to the book story. Uh, you mean these f- fans of this very adult book were not happy that they turned it into children's entertainment? God, oh, I'm baffled and confounded. Arnaud later or Latier, maybe. A leading <laughs> scholar on Hugo accused... You did French. You have no excuse for not being able to say French names. You I learned French for eight years. I haven't spoken French in about ten years. You did the freaking Beauty and the Beast intro in French, didn't you? Yeah, that was a struggle. Yeah. Anyway, he accused Disney of simplifying editing and censoring the novel. Wow. In- they simplified a large... How many pages is freaking... <laughs> in numerous aspects including the personalities of the characters in his review of the film he later wrote that the animators don't have enough confidence in their own emotional feeling and the film falls back on cliches shock of all sh- that's again this kind of criticism I find just utterly stupid that this freaking 940 page three volume book is not uh, has been distilled down to children's entertainment and somehow all the complexity of those 940 three volume pages have been lost in this translation from like epic novel to children's entertainment. Oh, how did that happen? I think you've referenced this before, Gar. Those two things can exist exclusively. Yes. You know, it, it can be a, a fun children's movie that gives them a little bit of the dose of the medicine without being too harsh and teaches the themes and the morals and the novel still exists for people who want to enjoy that. Yeah, and children are never going to read that 940-page French book. Come the, on! Descendants of Hugo bashed Disney in an open letter to Liberation in the newspaper for their ancestor getting no mention on the advertisement posters and describing the film as vulgar commercialization by unscrupulous salesmen. Sure. Yeah, so... Wasn't the book not out of copyright at that stage? Uh, it's published in English in 19, uh, 1833. When did Victor Hugo die? That's the important question. Victor Hugo died in 1855 plus... Uh, oh, it would have been. Yeah, it's well out of copyright. Never mind. So yeah, they didn't get the rights to it. So <laughs> they just like, yeah, who wants to do Hunchback? Demi Moore as Esmeralda. Another example of celebrity casting, but I think she does admirable job here. She's fine. And a, a good performance. She gets across a, the free spirit and, and sassy nature of Esmeralda. The only performance I really like in this film is Frollo's. Yes. Who is sinister oh. and menacing and a very good villain. By Tony J. Yeah. Who's since passed on, but uh, I think he does the singing voice as well. He does. I think all the people still do, do their singing voice in this, don't they? Yeah. And I like Jamie Moore does a pretty good song in this film. I don't remember it. 
We'll talk about it in a minute. <laughs> I have a few more notes here on the story. Quasimodo is so thirsty. He's really desperate to have Esmeralda like him and stay in the church forever. But like, again, as we talked about, he... He helps her escape. Then. He, he helps gets her over esca- it. He helps her escape, but at the same time, she leans into that to kind of... Manipulate him. He uses his feelings because she's the first girl that he's ever probably seen. Yeah, so <laughs> As a man who's of course lived in the bell tower his entire life. Of course he loves her, but you know, Phoebus fell in love with her in one glance, so he claimed her, you know. Yeah. The love triangle I hear, I don't find it terribly successful. Like all of this film, it's fine. Yeah, it's a plot device. I have device. no takes about this film. That's my problem. That's the reason I think this film is fine. I was like, all right, sitting down to talk about a hunchback of Notre Dame. What do I have to say? It's like, follows horniness, of course. And then I'm out. That's all I have left to say about this film, other than follows horniness. Do you think if he just beat one off, none of this would have happened? Yeah, just jerk off, bang one out. Everything is fine. He yeah. wouldn't have burned the city down. Okay, we have a classic climactic siege here, which again, with the 3D looks really great. And there's a really cool visual of like molten metal, I think, pouring from the, the yeah. turrets of, of Notre Dame. That's a cool visual. And probably the most interesting use of the gargoyles, very similar to the climactic scene in uh, Beauty and the Beast. Yes, yeah. I wrote that here in my notes. The action is is uh, very similar, but it, the sequence is a lot of fun, but it has also has some very striking visuals. Yeah, is it more the... the uh, characters come to the came to life are all defending their home the mm-hmm. same thing this film is Beauty and the Beast except worse and also much this of- film is Beauty and the Beast except worse It has elements of the Lion King as well, because Judge Frollo literally couldn't resist revealing that he killed Quasimodo's mother before promptly plunging to his doom. Yep. So, like, it it ticks all those Disney boxes. Classic plunge to the doom death as well. So I think that, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head, Gary. Like, from a story point of view, there's nothing really new here. No. And... Horniness. Maybe horniness isn't kind of new. That's new. Yeah. So there we go. Moving on to the music. This is the second movie in a row to contain songs from the new, at the time, writing partnership of Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz. We have the first... The Schwartz guy. He's mediocre. Yeah, we, we have the first ever male I want song in, in this film, out there sung by Quasimodo. Is it the first ever? I think so. One Jump Ahead? That's not really it. Is that an I want song? Not really. Hmm. The I want song. I guess yeah, they took that out. Yeah, they, they took cut that from the movie. Yeah, it's Schwartz. He's got nothing on Ashman. Can yeah, I think out there is a great song. Yeah, I really like it. it. It gives me the feels. Topsy Turvy Day is is a really great time as well. It reminds yeah. reminds me of Be Our Guest. Mediocre. Okay, girl. What else I got for you? I completely wiped God help the outcast from my memory. It's a nice little song. I don't even know what song that is. A lot of it's where she sings in the church after she gets sanctuary. Oh yeah. Like for me, I, I only really remember out there Topsy Turvy Day and Hellfire, despite watching this movie regularly. So a lot of these songs slip my mind. Speaking of Hellfire though, I think it's up there with one of the best Disney villain songs in my book. The whole sequence is very striking and memorable. In the shadows that are haunting him and the like their reflection of his inner demons. It's all very good stuff. And the judge that you know, he's being judged by all these hooded men. Yes, and he figures. just wants to be horny. He just wants to be horny and free. And all these people are judging him, and they're ruining his life. And he reveals his plan. He's basically, she can either love me, or I'll kill her. Yes. Which is a th- actually a, a, a classic Disney theme. It's like, look, you have no choice in this. You're going to marry me, or I will kill you. Yes, which is certainly a way to find love. Yeah. Again, ripped straight out of Beauty and the Beast. But... Uh, none of these songs were nominated for an Oscar. For good reason. They're all mediocre. Garrett, this is, was a streak going all the way back to... Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid. So, well, with the exception of, of Rescuers Down Under, which is a weird detour on Doesn't the... count. Does that, that doesn't even have songs, though. No. So but it might. I don't even remember. No, it has no songs. So there you go. It's a weird detour on the Disney Renaissance It's like a whole... It's just a, it's just a holdover from the 80s that's still there. Yeah, but again, I think the top three songs are very strong. I, I would have thought they would have been nominated, and these are the songs I most remember, and, and this is what I most remember from the, the movie in general. But, Gary, you're not sold. No, I think it's fine. 
It's all fine. I don't love any of it. I don't love any of the characters. I don't love any of the songs. I think the animation looks pretty good, but it's nothing like super memorable or special, which is probably a symptom of what you mentioned earlier, but all just looking having like a samey feel to it. It's it's fine. In terms of the legacy of this film, The Hunchback of Notre Dame received Academy Award and Golden Globe nominations for its score, but was the first Disney movie in some time, as we said, not to receive a top award for music. No Best Song nominations, which I, I think it really surprised me. I think Hellfire could have been a contender. Hellfire is not its own song, though, is it? Yeah, it is. I'm pretty sure on the Spotify playlist, Ken, it's tied to a Quasimodo song that comes before it. Okay. It's a double song. Oh, yes. Yeah, he sings about his longing... So I'm pretty sure the, 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 that's maybe the, the Quasimodo section drags the Hellfire section down. Yeah, out there seems like it's tailor-made for an Oscar nomination as well. It's too samey, though. It's like Bell, but worse. Karen Again, the, 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 I've come to my conclusion that I, it's just the worst version of Beauty and the Beast. You're really trashing my, my childhood here. I am. I don't. I, it's, it's, it's like this is a film that you have a lot of fondness for. And I'm sure it's a fondness is justified in your brain, Ken. But me watching it for the first time in the year 2020, I think it's fine. Go on, tell me, tell me about your fondness. You take us home. Get yeah. my negativity out of here. I'll just tell you a couple more things, Gar. A darker, more gothic stage adaptation of the film was produced by Walt Disney. Theatrical, mostly ran in Germany and smaller US markets, so it's never really made it. So it probably just didn't succeed. That was probably like the test run. They were like, nah. A direct-to-video sequel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, was released in 2002, in which he does get the girl. Yeah. So he finds a different girl. Is Esmeralda in that one too? Probably not. Demi Moore is too expensive. That's true. Gar, to answer your question, a live action adaptation is in the works with Josh Gad, possibly attached to play Quasimodo. He is a producer on the film. The film will borrow from both the animated film and Victor Hugo's novel, so it should be more serious in tone. Mm. And maybe they might kill him off this time. Because to, to bring things home, as, as you said, I still have a soft spot for this film, so maybe I, I'm a bit biased in my assessment of it. I think that it has some very memorable songs. I think it has some nice performances by the lead cast, especially Tom Hulse. You know, you get the sense of his hesitation and you get the sense of his you know discovery of this outside world and his longing for wanting to be accepted i think that it has storytelling problems it's uneven at times and it kind of rushes to a conclusion where it doesn't feel that earned where cosimodo is suddenly accepted I, I, I didn't buy that feels derivative of other works the animation as i said i think it's the best implementation of 3d i think we agree on that mm. but you know like and it looks nice because it has all the kind of the outlines look great the crowd scenes look fantastic it all looks great but like i think as we're moving forward hercules we'll see is a completely different style and I like to see that in my animated films as well I like to see when they make a stylistic choice for the aesthetic of the film rather than just in the past they made it for like uh, budget reasons and they made it for for time reasons you know it probably doesn't help that a large amount of this film is set in a cathedral yeah which there's only so much you can do it's either in the cathedral or in the courtyard outside the cathedral and that's where like legitimately 95% of this film plays out so maybe that's why yeah it's one born looking building it's actually quite a nice looking building. Oh, it looks wonderful from the outside, but like, yeah, there, there's there's not much like we had in the previous films. We had, you know, the wilds of Virginia, you know, early settlers in America. Even though you hated how that film looked too. We had the African savannah. No, I, I agree, Gary. When it looked great, it looked great, but it didn't go far enough is what I think. All right. But uh, I, I think I, I'll always come back to The Hunchback of Notre Dame because I have a soft spot for it. And so does Nicole. It was one of her favorites when she was a kid. But I can agree that it's not the, the best in the Disney canon. Mm-hmm. So there we go. 
No, you also relate to the Festival of Fools, don't you? <laughs> Couldn't help yourself, could you? <laughs> no. <laughs> Would you like to see a note I actually wrote down? My second note, read it aloud. Festival of Fools, call Ken a fool. Of course. Of course. <laughs> all right, bell ringers, that's nearly all they wrote for another week. Magic by Design's resident musical expert Nicole is coming up in just a few moments with an epic cover of one of the Hunchback of Notre Dame's most famous songs. It's always a treat, so be sure to stay tuned for that at the end of the show. You can find new episodes of Magic by Design every Monday, where all magical podcasts are downloaded. Check out our website at Magic by design.buzzsprout.com to find a full list of podcast providers. There, you'll also find all our previous episodes if you're catching up or if you feel like revisiting an old favourite. You know, so, Gary, we recently joined Amazon, iHeartRadio, we're everywhere. Yeah, wherever you can find podcasts. I'll even, if you want me to come around to your house and do a dramatic reading of this right in front of you, I'll just do it. Are you going to play me as well? Yeah. Do me. It'll be the most difficult role. Do, do your Ken impression. I'm dumb. Look at me. I like Quasimodo. You hurt me. Got him so deep. Magic by Design is also on your favourite social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Magic by Design Pod, on Twitter at Magic Design Pod, and on Instagram at Magic by Design Pod. If you're enjoying our Disney discussions and want to support the show, please do consider giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice, share the podcast on your socials, or even recommend to a fellow Disney fan. If you don't give us a five-star review, we will lock you in a bell tower for the rest of your natural-born days, where your only friends will be gargoyles and pigeons. Okay, if you watch this film, Think of your five-star review as your repressed horniness yes. and think of giving it as setting Paris on fire. And that's that's the metaphor here. Just let it out. Yeah. Let it free before you burn Paris down. <laughs> we will be back next week at the same time, same place for our last show of 2020, a review of Disney's 35th animated feature Hercules. But until then, stay safe and remember, life's not a spectator sport. If watching is all you're going to do, then you're going to watch your life go by without you. You're a gargoyle. You're a gargoyle. You're mm-hmm. literally a gargoyle. Yeah. Gargoyle. Yeah. Gotcha. You steamrolled me pulling you down, so I will let you just end the podcast. Just give me that. Give me that before the end of 2020. <laughs> now then, Nicole is back with yet another Disney banger. This week, she's taking on God Help the Outcasts from the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Thanks for listening and have a Merry Christmas. Or if Christmas is not your bag, have a nice December 25th for no reason in particular. Yeah. Krampus. Take it away, Nicole. Hello there, Disney friends. It's me, your musical correspondent, Nicole, coming to you live from my bedroom. This week, we're sounding the bells with The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Alan Menken and Stephen Swartz teamed up again for this movie, attracted to the theme of discrimination. Again, Menken wrote the score for the movie, with many musical motifs carrying through the film's score, weaving in and out of the musical numbers, representing a character, emotion, location or idea. For instance, we often hear the cathedral motif throughout the film, which is connected to Notre Dame. It's heard when Frollo tries to kill Quasi by dumping him in a well outside the cathedral, and it's also heard when Kloppen mentions the bells of Notre Dame. Very different versions of the theme, but based on the same motif. Though the music, in my opinion, is really beautiful, textured and clever. With its good versus evil representation, the soundtrack did not win any awards. Though Out There was a song we all remember... The one that hit me right in the fields when I was a kid was God Bless the Outcasts, sung by Esmeralda and Chorus. I hope you enjoy it. God help the outcasts, hungry from birth. Show them the mercy they don't find on earth. God help my people. Oh
Children.